Hello, friends, and welcome to Impact Everywhere, a podcast that searches for people having a positive impact in unexpected places. My name is Benjamin Von Wong, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Joshua Bellhumer, a managing partner and creative director of the Webby Award winning Brick. That's B R I N K. Now, what is Brink, you ask? Well, it's a creative group composed of four different parts an agency, a consultancy, a foundation, and last but not least, a film distribution company. And in each and every one of those branches, they are guided by a sense of purpose to elevate their communities and culture. Located in both Tucson and Washington, Brink is listed as one of Inc.'s 5,000 fastest growing companies and has worked with a wide variety of clients, from corporations to election candidates and causes. What I found most interesting, though, is how Josh thinks. He speaks both the language of a storyteller and that of a business executive. In today's episode, we explore what purpose means to Josh and how it informs his business decisions and attracts dream clients. Three things I found most exciting. First, that the future may be bright for individuals like myself should corporate social activism become the next big thing. More on that later. Second, an explanation of why the binary thinking of machines may be rubbing off on us and why that is not a good thing. And third, that just because you're the middleman or woman doesn't mean you have to wait for companies to come to you with causes in hand can also find the causes and be the one to make those connections. All of this and more in today's episode. This is Joshua Bellhumer, and I've just asked him what got him to pursuing his purpose. I mean, the primary driver was the 2016 elections. So we've only been calling ourselves a purpose-driven agency for three years now. And that's because, uh, you know, election night when it was clear Trump was going to win was just a rude awakening for us that um, things were going down a path we did not like. And this idea of business is just business mm. um, can't stand. We have, to, we have to fight. Um, I also think there's this complicating factor with that. And I think the primary reason is definitely the use of disinformation and content in general online and, and through social media. And so if you look at it through that lens, you start to realize, you know, me as a digital media expert, I am a foot soldier now in this fight against extremism, the alt-right, whatever you want to call it. We have a very important role to play. Um, and so from that point on, we started, it's not like we had clients that we were ashamed of or anything like that. But before that, we wouldn't talk about politics publicly. We did the typical thing where, you know, you as a business are neutral. Mm -hmm. um, after that, we were aggressively talking about a point of view for a more progressive country in a progressive world, which, you know, I think a lot of people see as risky. I would say in hindsight, it was smart because it gave us a vision and a path and allowed us to differentiate ourselves too in a world of 500,000 different agencies that are all right. kind of saying the same thing. You did, did you suffer any backlash? Did you have any clients you didn't renew? Or did you lose any work as a result of this new shift? Or did you sense any I mean, you live in Arizona. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get that Tucson is a very blue state, but ultimately there is a price. Yeah, I I don't know directly what kind of costs we would have had with that. Um, we definitely, I think we started pushing out the clients ourselves that we didn't want to work with. 
I'm sure that we've had clients that have chosen no. not to work with us. Yeah, but you, would, clients, you wouldn't know. But we yeah, wouldn't exactly. know because they wouldn't tell us. <laughs> um, there are those moments where like you'll have a bigger client, you know, it's like a bigger, like mid-sized corporation. And you see that the CEO is like a hardcore Republican and you know you're pitching them and the marketing team may love you and you're just worried that maybe in the background the CEO will look into us and then say, you know, don't work with these guys. Right. Um, so th- there is that like that little bit of a fear there, or there was. I, I, I would say that fear has gone away now because, like I said, I think I think it's been good for us to have a vision and have a purpose in every sense of the word in defining ourselves. I want to talk about one of your interesting uh, thought pieces that you talk about, which is how the internet is killing humanity. And and in that piece, you have this really interesting point about how the world's becoming more binary. There's a sense that like there's a right and a wrong. There is very little space for grays because algorithms try to push you in one direction or the other to to basically put you in a box to help you make a decision. And the reason I wanted to start there is just because you would in your thought piece you you say that this is a really bad thing. It's it's making us less able to have dialogues. But at the same time, you're also taking this pseudo black and white stance of red versus blue. And so I'm curious to know like is there a good black and white, a good binary thinking, and then a bad binary thinking? Or is this just how you're putting yourself out in the world, but then when it actually hits reality, there are shades of gray. It's- yeah, I think there's, there's always shades of gray because my morality is different than your morality, which is different than anybody else's. So to claim that there's a definitive right and there's a definitive wrong is is a misnomer to do so. I think that politics in particular does become binary because there's two main political parties in America. And I know as well as anybody being inside the beltway of DC, the power that comes through the parties. And um, it's very much a party-driven thing rather than a candidate-driven thing. Mm. And right or wrong, it's the reality of the situation. So it drives me nuts when I see people apply crazy purity tests to politicians and say, well, I'm just not going to vote if this is the politician that's going to be in. Um, I've heard somebody use the quote before, like picking a candidate or, or voting for a candidate is like choosing which bus to take. You can either stand where you're at or you could get on the bus that's going to take you closer to your destination. You may not have the bus that's going to take you directly there, but you're better off taking the bus that gets you closer. Right. Certainly not one that takes you further away and right. certainly not standing still. I think that's a good metaphor. And I think people should keep that in mind when it comes to politics. But outside of politics, I think there's tons of shades of gray in everything. And I think that we even try to challenge ourselves constantly. I'm definitely a provocateur within the four walls of our business. And, you know, I have a a staff with very progressive people with very progressive points of views. Some are probably communists. Um, (laughs) And I am constantly challenging people to empathize with their political enemies, so to speak. And and challenge their assumptions and challenge their points of view. Walk me through, there, <laughs> I, I, you, you told me a really interesting story that I think um, the listeners would really appreciate, which is uh, when, when someone reaches out to you guys that is right on that brink of acceptable versus unacceptable, you guys have a really interesting process to decide like whether or not you take a gig. Can you walk me through like an instance of gray, of very serious shades of gray? <laughs> sure. I, I'm not going to get too specific, I think, because... Uh, I don't know Without who's going to be listening. about the client. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah, don't need exactly. to talk about the, the who. Uh, but, but yeah, I think there's there there's moments where you know that it's a shade of gray. And 
you don't want to just spring it on the whole team. And so in those moments, every two weeks, we have an all hands meeting, which is just a venue for us to really walk through where the business is at. Part of that meeting is I always present all of the businesses we are pitching. I either give updates on businesses that I've already introduced to everyone, or if it's a completely new opportunity, I present who the business is. And I usually frame it around purpose as well. I say, this business is great because they are doing this. If there's ever an instance where that business is in that gray area, it always will ignite a conversation in that setting. And we will, we've had one or two in the last couple of years where it became a very long dialogue to the point of us having one-on-one meetings, different people hearing different points of view than having group meetings and <laughs> like a drawn out process. We got to the point, I think there's just one in particular where it was so tough because the majority didn't want to do it from just like in a vacuum, didn't want to do it. But from a business standpoint, there was these politics at play where if we didn't take on this client, it might have cost us our biggest client that we already had that we loved. And that was a really hard one to navigate. And where we actually ended up landing was the, the members of our team that didn't want to work on it were allowed to step away and not have to see it or touch it or look at it. And then people that were okay with it were the ones that worked on it. Right. That's, um, that's super interesting because like I'm an individual, right? So yeah. I'm just, I'm a, I'm a one man artist. And so I have to make these calls where I'm like, nope, my brand stops here. I'm not allowed. I don't have like a committee to partition myself. So I think it's super cool that you have the opportunity to do that because everyone is different and there is no ubiquitous right and wrong in, in many, many cases, right? Like there are a few stances that you can very clearly take. Um, I don't know if you... Uh, don't want to support climate change, you will never work for a petroleum company. It's like right. they're very simple black and whites, but then there's all that other stuff in the middle that that sometimes makes it really hard. Um, so in, inside this article that you talk about of the of how the internet is killing humanity, I'd love, I'd love to hear like a couple of the other points on what you believe is wrong with the internet and how the work that you're doing can help help fix that. Sure. So we basically broke it down into four areas that we think the internet is what did we say? Killing humanity, destroying yeah, humanity. Very yeah. dramatic. Very dramatic, which is <laughs> actually one of those categories, right? With the skewed is sensationalism. So I'll start with that one. <laughs> uh, so we are we are doing the same thing, but welcome to the internet and the way the algorithms work. Uh, a little background on skewed is sensationalism as a concept. You may call it clickbait. That's a very common phrase for it. The reason why clickbait is so pervasive and common on the internet is because the way the social media algorithms are set up, the more emotionally eliciting headline is going to reach more people. And that's because you react to it more. You either hang on it more. I mean, you know, they're measuring how long you're looking at pieces of content, for example, or you're commenting or you're you're liking or hearting or whatever that that reaction is. Um, And so, you know, within that, you get this skew towards very oversimplified, dramatic and emotional points of view. And as you know, not everything can be oversimplified and not everything's dramatic. And in fact, sometimes the answers to very complex problems are very boring answers. I mean, so that, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> if, Absolutely. If, if only the sensational stuff can cut through the noise. The other one is filter bubbles, which is a term coined, I think, 10 years ago around this idea of intellectual isolation, mm-hmm. uh, where... The algorithms are designed to serve you stuff that you are more likely to consume, more likely to click on it and look at it. And that means it's stuff that's affirming your point of view. Right. And uh, I think filter bubbles are probably the one thing that has had the most conversation when it comes to the destructive forces of the internet over the Mm -hmm. last decade. But we see it as one of four 
um, within these pillars. Third one you had mentioned is the binary thinking. I think the really fascinating thing about the binary thinking is this idea that, you know, algorithms are built on binary code, right? Ones and zeros. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the more time we spend on machines, the more we become like the machines. And there's Mm -hmm. something like profound Mm -hmm. about that to me. But really, you know, to make it a little less philosophical, uh, (laughs) uh, what's happening here is like, let's say you're going on Facebook and you're exhibiting behaviors that show that you might want to buy a house. You're looking at Realtor.com, which, you know, Facebook can track when you're on Realtor.com because that Facebook tracking pixels everywhere. Follows you all over. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or you're, you're looking at home loans or anything like that. Now, because you've exhibited those behaviors, Facebook has put you in a little, like a bucket where they're saying this person is likely to buy a house. It's a yes or no thing, a one or a zero. This person's likely to buy a house. Now that you're in that, it's going to keep serving you ads about Mm -hmm. buying a house and it's going to try to push you in that direction. Mm -hmm. And so you may end up being reconditioned to want to buy that house even more than you would have. And that's kind of a scary thought. Right. It's pushing you towards something. It's almost helping you make that decision. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's making it true. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yep. Now, keep in mind, this is all, this is machine learning that's doing this. So Mm -hmm. it's not humans that are controlling this process. Machines are amoral. Mm -hmm. So... Think about things like extremism, whether you're talking about like white supremacists or you're talking about Islamic extremism or anything like that. You start just showing those behaviors a little bit, it's going to start pushing you in that direction. And it goes in all directions. It could be radical liberalism has the exact same problem. Yeah. It doesn't matter which side of the coin you're on. You just get pushed further and further into one direction. Yep, definitely. And then the the fourth one uh, we're calling unclear authority. Mm-hmm. That's the fake news thing, right? Where <laughs> you don't you don't know what's real, you don't know what's not. What ends up happening is because of those other three forces, even people that have a track record of authority, like the New York Times, for example, if they conflict with your point of view, you start to say, well, they're not trustworthy. They they have this slant or this slant, and you know, some of them, I think the media has earned skepticism, you know? Right, right. Well, uh, they've, they, they've had to adapt to these forces of the internet in order yeah. to survive. And so in some ways, they're not wrong. Right. Um, you know, we are not wrong to question media. But yes, there is a, a, now a lack of moral authority. So we, we do not know where to lean. So the, the best way is to consume as much trusted media as possible. But what's the word trusted? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the yeah. thing is like, we can't trust the scientists. We can't trust the media. We can't trust the politicians. Right. right. Who can you Who trust? trust? You end up trusting people that say things that sound good to you. And right. so that's just affirming your beliefs. The other thing that I find really interesting, and this might be a good segue to your other topic, but yeah. people trust brands more than they trust like journalists and politicians. Interesting. I, yeah, I think that's anytime they've done, like, I think uh, Edelman, the, the big PR firm, does the trust assessment every year. And yeah, brands are ranking higher than the, those other two. It's interesting. And, so talk to me about which brands are ranking higher and why. The very interesting thing is small business ranks the highest. Like, people really trust small businesses, but people are even trusting the big corporations more than they're trusting, like, journalists um, and politicians right now. And I think it's it, it all has to do with the power of marketing, the power of brand loyalty and brand affinity. Where is it because brands have more money to pour into a better story? That's, that's <laughs> <Maybe>. probably <laughs> that's probably a huge part of it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that I also think that people see brands as these things that are are helpful in their lives. A lot of times, brands don't have to do the challenging work that politicians and journalists have to do, mm-hmm. so they can always stay in this kind of fake happy world of marketing right and never have to be in a gritty real 
scenario, um, unless they choose to be, which is um, something that you're seeing happen. And, and that, that leads to this idea of this purpose-driven movement, right? And a lot of brands are uh, trying to say, yeah, we're purpose-driven, um, but you can tell which ones are are truly doing risky maneuvers and which ones are uh, just saying the words but not actually having to back it up. So then to talk about that real quick, you have this other piece on your website that talks about the need to move away from corporate social responsibility into something brand new that you've coined as uh, corporate social activism. And so tell me maybe what is wrong with corporate social responsibility as a topic and why corporate social activism might be a better approach. Yeah, so I think the big issue with corporate social responsibility that came out, I think, around the 60s. And it was always rooted in this idea that businesses are innately just bad. They're going to have some sort of negative effect on society. And so a business that practices CSR is a business that is trying to offset that harm that they're causing. And so it's these like pluses and minuses in two different columns. And it's like, let's just make sure we can get to an equilibrium of some sort and then we're good. And I think that's looking at business through the wrong lens. That's to me going back to that idea that business is just business where like we can do whatever we want. We can be somewhat just focused on bottom lines and profit and not anything else so long as we make sure we're offsetting it and not causing too much societal harm. I think businesses can reframe that and think, can we actually help society? Can we be rooted in putting purpose above profit and having profit just be the thing that keeps us sustainable so that we can continue to pursue our mission? Right. Um, so you want them to take more more leads, harder stances, stand for something, even if it goes against something you believe in? Because yeah. it, it goes both ways, yeah. right? No, I think that a business needs to be rooted in understanding what its purpose is, what impact it wants to have on the world. And then it needs to be like an unapologetic advocate for that. Right no matter if it costs them business or not, which, you know, we have plenty of options, you know, in our in our consumerist society of different businesses to purchase from. And so it, it makes sense from a business standpoint as well for you to do that, to create your own lane and to stick in it. So then in, in a couple of years, there might be a, a mirror agency to yours on, on the opposite side of the fight. How would that look? <laughs> 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 I mean, the, I, and I'm sure there is. I don't spend a lot of time researching agencies that are doing purpose around conservative. I conservative guess it doesn't make values. sense. Uh, well, it does make sense. It does I, make sense. Yeah, they would yeah. just be fighting around different things. I mean, it's a different language structure. It's a different message. It might not wholly align with. Right. Yeah. I, I, I guess the reason I was saying it didn't make sense is because I was thinking of like conservatism as protecting a status quo. But we are in this this weird new energy where. Like the conservative movements become the counterculture movement in some aspects. They feel that way anyways. And it's a little bit more regressive now where it's like we want to go back, right? We want to make America Mm -hmm. great again, go back to where we were. Um, So that does make sense. It it is its own form of, like I said, I call it regressivism, but they'd call it progress. It's it's trying to move the needle back a certain way. Um, So yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. And yeah, I I have to support it, right? I I don't have to agree with what they're doing, but I agree with the model. And I think it's good to be uh, upfront about what you are and what you stand for. um, Because that's also, that means that if you were trying to have a conversation, then we could bring now these two people from opposing viewpoints who have taken a stance to have that conversation. It would be almost an invitation for dialogue 
when you see someone who's taking a stance but still open to explore? Because I think that's what you're doing. You are taking a stance, but you're still willing to have those conversations. You're not turning people down at the door. Yeah, yeah, I think so as well. And I think, you know, going back to this idea of corporate social activism, what we're saying is, you know, I think businesses have been trying to influence public policy for as long as Washington's been a thing. That's not new. They've just always done it through... In the shadows. Yeah, in the shadows. <laughs> and, you know, they hire lobbyists and that's the way it worked. But because of the new social media age so much political power comes from the grassroots and comes from the zeitgeist the cultural zeitgeist that brands have to be able to like participate in that if they do want to move the needle it can't just happen in the shadows and so then the question becomes are they doing it for the the causes we care yeah the right (laughs) reasons for things we care about or are they just doing it to make as much money as possible And I think that's something for consumers to decide. My argument to businesses would be, if you're out there and you're, again, unapologetic about what you stand for, it makes it easier for consumers to decide and it benefits you. Right. Absolutely. No, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've certainly gone down a similar path with impact, hoping to find the specific ones that champion the same causes because I... I mean, we're, we're all looking to find more purpose in our lives and to find, find a clarity of mission. And for the businesses who finally manage to turn their head in the right direction, which takes a long time and it's progressive, it's not, once again, it's not black and white. Right. I think, you know, we, we have a choice as storytellers to, to look and see who do we want to support? Do we want to encourage good behavior or do you just want to like slap people who are doing the bad thing, right? So there's kind of like two approaches towards it. And it looks like you're taking that really positive approach of, of signaling out loud that, you are looking for people who want to make a difference and then those people are seeking you out and then that creates like a positive cycle. And based on what you're saying, as your business has grown, it's, it's been working out for both you and your clients all at the same time. Yeah, and I think I've seen that a lot of our clients in recent years, sometimes they're, they're aspiring to, do, to be that. They want to be the purpose-driven company. Mm-hmm. And so they look to somebody like us to help them figure out what that means and define it. Um, and a lot of times our engagements with clients are starting with like a consulting level of uh, doing workshops and, and research and all of that uh, around their employees and their C-suite mm-hmm. uh, to identify what that purpose is and make like a really clever purpose statement and um, then usually root some sort of like tagline within it. So it's our big idea that we can all rally behind. And everything we do from that point forward, whether it's advertising or internal communications or, you know, any sort of like customer experience um, is rooted in that purpose. I think that I'm seeing more and more businesses want to do that. The authenticity factor of it, I think, changes from business to business. I think something that I ask myself often is, can a publicly traded company ever be that? Right. Yeah. I don't think so. I, I've decided that um, you have to be privately owned in order to truly be a an activist brand because you have a responsibility to the shareholders and to profit in the way we've set up our system. <laughs> so does that mean you wouldn't work with a publicly traded company? No, not necessarily. I think that there's there's publicly traded companies that operate responsibly. I, I just think the nature of our work with them would never be truly helping them become an activist brand. It would just be more doing general branding and marketing with them. What I'm talking about is this very specific thing, this corporate social activism I don't think I could ever sell or tell or <laughs> uh, successfully make a publicly traded company fit within that category as an activist brand. 
but but there's there's been movements recently like um that that thing that happened where 500 of 500 ceos came together and said that you know in order to be a responsible company in order to be responsible to our shareholders we need to act responsibly for the good of the entire planet we can't just think about our shareholders because we're playing the long game i, I don't know like to push back a little bit against what you just said i there, there could be some semblance of hope in that front and and while the change would be a lot slower, it's one of those things where you almost have to to keep encouraging with the, them with the little steps and until it becomes so integrally part of the identity that now they can no longer go back. Do you see a world in which, you know, story can help really guide that new direction? Yeah, well, I, and I think like that example you just gave, I would still categorize that as corporate social responsibility. In, I see. in that, like... I guess still to, too general, too weak. Yeah, to, too soft. To, to try to give it like a very clear distinction. I see CSR as organizations operating responsibility within current social norms. I see. Where I see CSA as organizations heroically standing for something that they care about and trying to reshape culture, shift culture. Right. So give me give the listeners an example here because I think it'll really help just to give something very tangible. What's an example of like a CSA campaign? Uh, with a client that you've championed and that has completely shifted the way um, they're seen and shifted a norm of what could be. I'll give you two examples, one that we didn't do and one we did do. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the greatest example of the most well-known company that's doing it is Patagonia. And they're the ones that we did the case study within our white paper that we wrote about corporate social activism. And to me, the two biggest examples for why there's activism here rather than just responsibility. One is they sued the Trump administration over public lands. Like suing the federal government is an example of going that extra step and truly waging a war rather than just doing a PR veneer or a marketing and advertising veneer. Mm. And the other thing is the fact that when they sell their like jackets, for example, they want you to keep that jacket for life. They repair it for free. It's anti-consumerist. And for a company that's selling products that they want you to consume to take that stance, to me, that's, it's not just the, oh, we're doing this responsibly. It's trying to change the culture and say, stop buying cheap stuff, <laughs> buy quality stuff. We're going to back it up and we're going to actually repair your jacket for you for free to make sure you do have it for life. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, our purpose is, enjoying the outdoors and preserving the environment. And right. we know selling you more jackets is not going to do that. To take it to a client that we've done, and I very much, I, I think this, this framework of corporate social activism, we just put this out in the last few months. Um, and so it's a new frontier and we're moving forward with it. But here locally in the Tucson and Phoenix markets, we're working with a credit union who we wanted to do campaigns around localism with um, because we do think, you know, Part of the spirit of a credit union is this idea of keeping more dollars locally in the local economy. So rather than just spending their entire marketing and advertising budget on promoting them and their checking accounts and their credit cards and all that, we sliced off pretty significant amount. I'm going to say 35% of their budget on marketing communications to go towards very specific behavior changing type campaigns around localism and partnering with a local first organization and the commercials we made, you could have taken the, the credit union's logo off of it and the commercial would have stood alone as a piece about the value of supporting local. 
I think it's a smart play from a marketing standpoint because rather than us going out and telling people that credit unions are better than banks because we're more responsible, we're showing them because we're putting our, our money into direct campaigns that are helping our community. But it's also very much a authenticity play or a proof point in making sure that people understand that when we say our mission is to help the community thrive, we very much mean it. Very cool. The other thing that I think is really interesting about you is that you're also being a little bit impatient here and you're not just waiting for companies to catch up to you because ultimately as a storyteller, as an agency, uh, you need to find someone worthy and someone willing to have that conversation and willing to spend the money in order to survive. And so you have some pretty interesting strategies that you're currently working on to take control of the change that you want to see in the world. Do you want to walk through that a bit? Sure. So I think we have the privilege of being able to come across a lot of great causes and organizations, both in the course of doing business you know, as far as clients go, but also just in our role in our communities. Uh, we're, we're always very engaged in our communities. We put on a number of different events in both Tucson and D.C. And so we'll come across different great initiatives. And like, I'll give you an example in D.C. Don't Mute D.C. is an organization we've been working with that spawned out of this hashtag Don't Mute D.C., um, which uh, there's this Metro PCS store on U Street, which is a very famous street in D.C., a uh, home of uh, go-go music, which is a beloved local <laughs> funk, style of funk. And, and they would blare music uh, out their store. I mean, their, their neighborhood started gentrifying and eventually some luxury apartments were built around the store and people complained about the music and they were able to get the music shut off. And the community really pushed back on that because it, it was just such a visceral marker of gentrification to have that moment. I mean, the T-Mobile CEO ended up having to step in and say, turn the music back on because the, the pushback was so grand. And what we realized there was that there's something with that don't mute that could be applied across the country. Because of that like relationship we have with them and we've been working with them and kind of consulting with them um, on a pro bono basis. But what I want to do and what we're actively working on now is taking those relationships then and then going to these big brands that have the deep pockets that can fund bigger initiatives and creating a basically three-way relationship where the brand is benefiting from the cause, the cause is benefiting from the money of the brand, and we are the strategy and the creative behind it and the ones brokering it. And so that way we can accomplish our goals in helping these causes that we do care about, but actually having resources behind it and getting paid so we can keep our lights on right. to, to do more of those projects. And I think we can really then push that corporate social activism idea forward more because these brands are now being able to tip the, dip their toes into the activism waters in a way that they're letting another cause that's already established kind of lead that, be the tip of that spear, but they're going to be behind it and they will benefit from it, but they also don't have to try to figure it all out themselves. Right. They, and they they're, they're also partially shielded. So they're shielded by your experience because you they're going to trust that you've represented brands properly in the past and you're able to properly introduce them into the world without it feeling uh, too abrasive or too disingenuous. And so you're also taking control of the outcome while also controlling the narrative. And so that's really um, where the power of a great storyteller comes into play. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's probably a unique aspect about us because not a lot of agencies have a, a significant amount of brand marketing experience and political and advocacy experience. Right. And so being able to kind of join those two there's something like this, I think makes a lot of sense. And it's something that I think is definitely our future. 
It's not paying our bills yet. Like I said, most of what we're doing right now is pro bono in that space. The activism or the advocacy, I should call it, that we do in D.C., you know, some of it pays the bills. We've been you know, privileged to work with the U.N. Foundation, Gates Foundation, uh, Families USA, which is mm-hmm. a great healthcare advocacy group. But really doing the, these types of campaigns that we want to do. We're just at the starting point of this, but I, I see a bright future there. Yeah, yeah, but what's so amazing is that like, as an agency or as a storyteller or as a creative, we're often, we're not in control, right? We, we just tell the great story and then what happens afterwards, we, we sort of relinquish to, like we hope to touch someone's heart and then they're going to do the right thing, but that's, that's so passive. And, and what you're talking about is it's just taking control again and you're like, you know what, I'm not going to wait I'm just going to go and find the right people. I'm going to I'm going to build these relationships that I want to have and I'm going to find a way to make that work. Um, and I think that's so cool. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And I, I'm very much a pragmatist as well, where I'll have my own point of view about the way I think the world should work. But I also I want to play the game the way the rules are laid out and try to make the most progress possible. So I'll give you a, a, an example with that, because. I'm a big champion of arts and culture on a community level specifically. One of the things that I've noticed is like my personal feeling is that arts and culture should stand on its own for the human experience behind it. But when you're trying to get funding and you're trying to get coalitions on board, a lot of times you have to reframe that conversation around economics. And so even though I personally feel like the art's art, we don't need to talk about the economics. I don't care if it makes money or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I know how to have that conversation. I know how to use terms like creative economy and talk about how it can help invigorate communities. And I can talk about the stories of cities like Toledo that really like took a depressed economy and turned it around through their creative economy and be able to garner support. And it just makes sense from the decision makers and the people with money um, so that we can make progress. And I think, you know, having a mentality of like absolute purity and not being able to have the right conversation with the right people and change the way you talk about an issue, depending on who you're talking about um, is just doing yourself a disservice. Absolutely. So then, so then what would you say is something that um, the, the less connected creatives out there who are really struggling to, balance out survival and creativity but also wanting to make a difference and wanting to be more involved like what do you think there's something that these people can 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 start to sure. do so i can speak a little bit to what we went through and how you can kind of interpret that um to a, we'll call it a step-by-step process sure <laughs> <laughs> um, i think the first thing is you have to draw a line for yourself and then you have to be willing like you you have that line move the further along in your journey you get. And so what I mean is never compromise your morals, only work with people that you'll feel good about working with, but also recognize that you're going to do work that is probably not helping you on your path. It's just paying your bills and that's okay. You're going to have that. But what's important is what you publicly put out there about yourself needs to be cultivated around where you want to be five years from now, 10 years from now, whatever your vision is. We, we made deliberate decisions to not put stuff out there publicly that we were working on and only put out the stuff that we thought fit with where we were heading um, in order to cultivate that image. Um, it is a brand. Everything is about brand building. You need to be making those decisions. Basically, think of yourself if you're an, even if you're an individual, think of yourself as a brand. Yep. Don't talk about the work that you 
hate doing because then more people are going to keep hiring you to do the work that you're not interested in. Talk about the things that you're most excited about, even if you weren't paid for it. Talk mm -hmm. about the things that you believe in and you're going to attract those kinds of things right back at you. Is that correct? That's correct. And even, even companies with 20, 20 plus people like we still consciously choose to take on certain work where we're not making much of a profit or at all. Yeah. But we know it's going to serve us well. Yeah, it's going to look good in our portfolio, and it's going to take us to the next step. Yeah, I, it, I do it, the same. Yeah, <laughs> it it, do, it doesn't change when the when the stakes get higher and the scale gets bigger. You still need to be making those decisions. Otherwise, you're never going to get to where you want to be. That's amazing. Thank you so much for that advice. Thanks for the conversation. I think uh, you've given everyone here a lot to think about. And uh, where can people go and discover more of what you guys do? How can they follow along with the journey? How can they be a part of the journey? Sure. So we're just at brink.com, B-R-I-N-K.com. We've been around long enough that we have one of those easy domains, which is great. We do have an email newsletter sign up that I, I highly recommend because what we do is uh, every other week we send a very simple, very compelling email that we call You Ought to Know, where we just share the one thing you need to know about what's happening in culture or what we're up to that we've learned from. We're trying to be very respectful with people's time. We know people get a lot of different emails. So that's something that I'm proud of that we get very good feedback on. Um, I think our mailing list is up to like 4,000 on that, which I'm, I'm proud of as well. We're not as great at social media as we should be, but we are on social media and that's all on the website. So you can follow us along there too. So there you have it, guys. I'm curious to hear which parts of the conversation you found most interesting and what questions I should have asked that I didn't. Shoot me an email on hello at impacteverywhere.org. Next episode, we'll be interviewing Will Mesner, who has worked at World Vision for almost a decade. World Vision is a massive nonprofit that works in over 97 different countries on humanitarian aid, development, and advocacy. I ask Will to share the different ways change can be achieved, the importance of art within the nonprofit sector, and why failing at a movement may not always be a bad thing. If that sounds at all interesting to you, make sure you subscribe because impact is everywhere. <laughs>